Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Gentlemen, it's so good to see you. You too. Good to see you. Uh, We've mentioned on this podcast several times the idea of human flourishing. So in this episode six, we are talking about what it means to be fully human, to live in the way we were designed to live, specifically as individuals made in the image of our creator or the Imago Dei, we will use those terms interchangeably, is considered the foundation of Christian ethics. Would you please help us understand this doctrine? Just start by thinking about an image. An image captures something, uh, reflects a certain aspect of something. You know, a photographic image of my daughter captures certain aspects of her physical appearance. So if we're in the image of God, somehow we capture and embody and reflect some aspect of him and who he is in his, in his very nature. It includes a number of things. I'll mention two. First is, is the capacity to create. You know, God is the ultimate creator. And, uh, he gives us that privilege and responsibility to be creators as well. In fact, Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is his charge to us to, uh, to cultivate his creation. That ability to create, I think, is one aspect. And the other is just the, the relationship uh, aspect that we can actually know God intimately. Uh, it's how we differ from anything else, including the angels, that we can actually have an intimate relationship with him. And I think that's part of the Imago Dei as well. JP, fill that out a little bit. Oh, I, I really like it, Stan. And I, I think uh, there are two things I'd like to add to what you're saying. And, I, and the first one is, I think it's important that we realize that to be in God's image is an ontological claim about the kind of thing we are. Mm. And there have been tendencies uh, in modern theology to try to get rid of that. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about that later if we'd like to. But I want to insist that to say that that we're in God's image is to say something about what kind of thing we are. Mm, good point. The second thing uh, is that when we make a claim about what kind of thing we are as image bearers, we're making a claim about a set of capacities or powers that we possess solely in virtue of being human beings. Mm. And so we have a range of abilities or capacities that reflect the kind of being God is. Of course, we have them to a limited degree, and they would be things like the powers of creativity, uh, the powers uh, to develop, Uh, relationships with God and with other image bearers, Uh, powers of a a certain kind of uh, rational thought that that would be a higher order rationality, maybe powers of of, uh, moral and ethical uh, awareness and action, powers to be free, uh, uh, and, and so on. But The important thing I want to say is that it's the possession of these capacities that I have by by nature. It is not the degree that they're developed. So that's a very important thing because we all are equally in God's image Mm -hmm. in solely in virtue 
of something about the way we're made, which amounts to a set of capacities or abilities that reflect God's powers, irrespective of whether I'm a defective and therefore I'm not able to, to realize some of these powers because I, I might not have, I might have a defect that might keep me from realizing my rational powers and so on or my relational abilities, but I still have the abilities, even if they're blocked and they're not capable of being realized to a degree that God wanted them to be. So it is having the capacities that makes us in God's image, not the degree to which they're realized. That's important, I think, to say. It sure is, and it has such wide-ranging implications in, say, uh, biomedical ethics, for instance, because uh, it it allows us to see people, no matter what their functional capacity, as equally human, uh, as fully human, as of uh, equal and deep intrinsic value. So whether it's uh, an infant in the womb or an elderly who no longer has certain capacities anymore uh those functional realities have nothing to do with how human they are i think it's easy in our western culture to take this idea for granted Hmm. but this is this is a fundamentally christian idea this is something that christianity brought to the table was the idea that that human life has value and worth even when it doesn't appear to have functional worth or worth that uh, produces something. Utility. Utility. I I think you're right. And I'll illustrate this, Jordan, by a very, a very widely known incident. But let me just say, I would want to say a Judeo-Christian understanding, because this is, after all, rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. Mm -hmm. So it isn't a distinctive New Testament. But I would say biblical religion. Uh, and if you if you claim that, then we are the ones that brought this to bear. Now, the, the incident I wanted to, to cite to illustrate your point was the Tiananmen Square incident back years ago when there were students and others revolting against the Chinese communist uh, government. And you will remember that a lot of these students were imprisoned uh, there was the face-off uh, with a tank and this one a student in Tiananmen Square. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, uh, what was very interesting was, was that the Western journalists who covered this were morally outraged and appalled uh, by the way the government was treating these, these uh, students and other protesters. They were imprisoning them and treating them like they were dirt or like they they didn't matter. Now, I found the whole thing quite uh, not only sad, but rather ironic, because on the one hand, journalists will say that religion is a private matter. It doesn't really have anything to do with what's going on in the public square, and that who are we to judge the values of other cultures and other religions, but yet they got appalled at this behavior. Now, you can't have it both ways, and here's why. Chinese religion, Taoism and and other forms of Chinese religion, as well as a communist uh, atheistic ideology, 
If you combine those, what, what this implies is that it is the emperor and the collective good that has value. Individuals do not have rights or value except insofar as they contribute to the common good, that's the communist side, and insofar as they serve the emperor, who is the embodiment of value. So for a, on a Chinese worldview, uh, what the, the Chinese government was doing was a moral duty. Uh, they had a duty to protect the emperor's right to rule any way he sees fit. And if you had the communist side to protect uh, those behaviors, the party judged were in the collective interests. Uh, so uh, the journalists thought it was appalling, but they were imposing their values on the Chinese worldview, which they're not in by their own standards, are not entitled to do. Now, of course, they intuitively knew that what they were doing was right. But why? Answer, they were borrowing capital from a biblical worldview that says that individuals have rights because they bear God's image. Uh, moral value does not adhere to the emperor alone, and it is not the collective corporate uh, group that has value. It's the individuals that have value, and the government exists to serve them, not vice versa. And so a Christian had every right to help himself or herself to the image of God and protest, but the secularists had no right whatsoever. They were borrowing capital from a Christian worldview in order to make sense out of their protestation of what the Chinese government was doing. And this is right to your point, Jordan. This illustrated that the, the Judeo-Christian doctrine of the image of God has play in the public square, and it serves as the ground for protesting other worldviews and the way they treat people. But a secular view that the press holds is bankrupt and has no ground whatsoever to be telling the Chinese people how they ought to conduct their business. And that happens all over the place, but you're, it illustrates your point nicely. Mm. Yeah, happens all the time. Mm -hmm. That was an excellent clarification. And I like the term borrowed capital. Yes. Because it seems, it just seems like a very, very apt way to describe that phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So now I'd like to ask what it means to be a human individual the human individual that has value and worth? You know, what, what do we mean when we say human? Well, you have to be really careful, very careful here, because to be a human being is not to be a homo sapien. Mm -hmm. Because if you say that we are homo sapiens, then you are engaged in biological reductionism without knowing it. In other words, you're reducing what it means to be human to satisfying a set of biological classificatory criteria. Now, I would say that a human being is at least a homo sapien. That is, we are biological beings 
while we have bodies, when we die, we are no longer homo sapiens. But even when we're embodied, we are more than our biology. We are human persons uh, from conception. And uh, so I want to be very careful to say that to be a human is to be much more than to be a certain kind of biological species. Uh, we, have, we are souls that are embodied, and the account of our flourishing is going to be different than the account of an animal, even a sophisticated animal like a homo sapien flourishing. And so to be an individual human being is to be much more than a bio, to satisfy a biological classification. It's a very, very big deal. Mm. Well, well said. Uh, it, it seems to me uh, what it is to be human is, is, is to be a, a being with a set of properties or ranges of properties that uh, would be, include emotional properties or capacities and rational properties or capacities and volitional properties that um, that are altogether only shared by other humans. So it's it's those of us that have all and only a certain set of capacities, back to JP's earlier point, whether they're always expressed or not is, hmm. is, is, is not the point because some never get a chance to express all these, these capacities. But it's the highest order level of capacities that taken together as a group make one human such that we can actually pick out things that are human, human persons, pretty clearly, because we, we, can, we can observe some of these capacities. And I think uh, to hitchhike off of what Stan has just said, it follows from this that the right way to describe the growth of the, 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 the being from fertilization to birth and then from birth to adulthood, the right way to describe that is to say that that being is maturing and growing as a human person, mm-hmm. or to say it differently, they are becoming more and more of a mature human person. The wrong way to describe it is to say they are increasingly becoming a human person. If that's the latter is the way we describe it, that means that you can be 20% of a human person and then you become more and more of a human person. And so the value of a full human person and the mother is worth more than the value of a, uh, of a less than full human person in the womb, but that we don't grow into more and more of a human person. A fertilized egg is already a fully human person, but they grow, they mature as a human person. Mm -hmm. So what happens is maturation, not becoming more of the kind of thing I am, but maturing as the kind of thing I already am. And that's an important distinction. It really is. And JP, I know you've written on this. I've written some uh, on this as well. It's this idea, we've talked about it a few times, of having highest order capacities that then over our lifetime, we are more and more being able to express or they become first order capacities or things that actually we can do. And the, the, the best example to understand higher order and lower order capacities or first order capacities is um, if I am a chain smoker, uh, you might ask me, can you, can you have your last cigarette today? And I'd have to say, no, I don't have that capacity. 
but I, I actually have the capacity to have that capacity at some point. I can start doing things like going to uh, classes that help me with others, have some accountability, starting to use a nicotine patch, certain things I can do that ultimately down the road at some point, allow me to have that first order capacity, that ability to actually today say, no, that's, that's it. I'm done. And we see this in all areas and we see this, you know, in spiritual formation. That's why we practice doing certain things in our bodies that allow us to then have the first order capacity when the temptation arises or the opportunity arises to do the right thing that we actually can do that. And um, I think that's important to remember because without that, then there's this reduction to functionalism where I am only my first order capacities. And of course, nobody expresses all their capacities fully, except for Jesus, who is the exemplar of what it looks like to fully express all capacities at a first order level. And I think this relates to your, to the question of what it means for a human being to flourish. I think any kind of thing is flourishing when it is, it has achieved excellence at the kind of thing it is. So let's take a knife, a flourishing knife is one that is excellent at doing what knives do. And that would mean it's excellent at cutting. And that would mean the more its blade is sharpened, the more it is on the way to becoming an increasingly Hmm. fully functional knife. A knife with a blunt edge is not flourishing or not fully functional and and the same thing for a dog or any object but now for us there would be distinctive ways that we achieve a mature development of our capacities or powers as a an image bearer of god and a human being and as we make our journey towards that maturation Um, That just means that our abilities are growing in their excellence according to what we are. So that would mean things like excellence in our ability to think or feel or to desire the right things and to make uh, good choices for what we are. And we would be overcoming uh, vices and, and hindrances to that. So A fully functional human being would be one who is growing in excellence towards his power to relate to God, to reflect what kind of being God is by exhibiting more and more of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, who would be able to fulfill his or her calling in this world by uh, learning how to do and to think and feel and desire certain tasks that perhaps they're uniquely gifted at. Uh, maybe it would be to be an athlete or some other thing, but this would also include being a good father or husband or friend and, and learning how to relate well to others and to exhibit God's calling in a, in a really outstanding way. And this would include a very deep spiritual component to it. That would be my understanding. Sam, would you like to add something to that? Well, no, it's really good. Only thing I would add is, and you've implied this, it's not only growing in those capacities being expressed, but it's growing in a healthy connection between those capacities. So for instance, as we grow in our understanding of what's true and good and right, it then 
and a fully flourishing person leads to making wise choices. That's part of our volitional capacity. Or as we develop emotional health, that's part of our emotional capacity, it leads to healthy relationships with others and that relational social capacity. So it's not only the maturation in those various areas or dimensions of our being, but it's those relating to one another in healthy ways to help us flourish and really uh, fully express what it is to be human. And again, we, we, we look at Jesus and we see the example. Here's what it looks like, not only to have those capacities fully developed, yes. but those in relationship to one another in healthy places. Well, that, this is so key because this, this is, Stan is talking about an internal coherence. Uh, there will be a unity to the person's faculties that the, what I think and feel and decide and desire and all these things are going to fit together into a coherent unity. I, 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 that's the opposite of what the scriptures call being double-minded mm. and unstable. That means that you're one thing in one area of your life and something completely different. You're fragmented. Uh, you, mm. you, you don't have your bag tied, as they say. <laughs> what does it mean to have your, to have your act together? you're all together in one unified approach to life. And that's, that's mm-hmm. a good thing to be unified mm-hmm. rather than spread out all over the map. Well said. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child relative or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to thinking Christianly. So human flourishing is not necessarily something we achieve. Is this correct? I, I think I get mixed up in my mind the idea of meeting a teleological end and human flourishing. So I personally make human flourishing my goal and then feel as though I never achieve the goal. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think what I would say would be that it is something that we achieve, if you mean by that, move increasingly toward. Mm. So I don't believe that full human flourishing is attainable in this life. And I actually don't believe that it will ever be attained in the afterlife in the following way. To be sure, in the afterlife, we will not be suffering from defection or fragmentation or privations. We won't be fallen, but we still will be finite. And so that will mean that while we will not be 
defective uh, or culpable of falling short of full functioning, full functioning will still be constantly on the increase simply because of our finitude. And we will continue forever to learn uh, new things, uh, to grow in our abilities to do this, that, or to think this or that. But we will, it's not like if we're still growing, we're sinning or anything. It, this, that isn't what I mean. But you can still be getting better and better forever. So I think in this life, we're affected by both finitude and fallenness. So no, it is teleological. It's something that is we're moving towards an unachievable end, but we will always be growing toward it in the afterlife. But in this life, our goal is to maximize uh, our flourishing as best we can with God's co-laboring help and empowerment. Stan, does that ring true to you? It sure does. And it really, in this life also, is very age and stage dependent. So uh, if a two-year-old throws a bit of a fit because he didn't get the toy he wanted, you know, it's something that two-year-olds do. Now, when a 12-year-old does that or a 22-year-old does that, that's a problem. Uh, and so the, 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 the two-year-old is flourishing, even though he's at a different developmental stage than a 12 or 22-year-old. And, and, and we, we know that intuitively. And that's why we describe things like if a 12-year-old does it as immature. In other words, there ought to be a level of maturity reached, and he's not there yet. Uh, we do this with with physical development as well. Disease. Uh, a lot a lot of the words we use are words that are clearly denoting a sense of teleology. That there's a certain developmental pathway, emotionally, relationally, physically, uh, volitionally. That if people aren't developing in those ways, we know it, and 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 we intercede whether it's through a physician or a counselor or, or, or whoever treats that type of deficiency. The same is true in our spiritual lives. So, uh, you know, th th there certainly could be a 20-year-old who's been walking with the Lord for 15 years, came to faith at five and had a genuine conversion, who is more mature, more expressing those capacities than a 50-year-old who has just come to faith last year. So it doesn't always match up with uh, with age and stage biologically, but, uh, but that's the type of trajectory and teleology we see. And so I think at any point we have to say, am I where I, I ought to be? Again, there's a normative notion. Am I where I ought to be uh, as I live into my, uh, my nature, what it is to actually be, be a, a human person created in the image of God? Mm -hmm. So my four-year-old can experience flourishing. Mm -hmm. as I can experience flourishing, though they look very different. Mm -hmm. And uh, it will be relative to their stage of development. So, you know, a caterpillar can be maximizing what it, what it is to be a caterpillar. Uh, there could be a caterpillar that's the same age, but is, say, defective in certain ways. But, but we would judge a, a, a healthy caterpillar it, with different criteria than a healthy butterfly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, so this is relative to, but without it being relativism, but we would make flourishing uh, judgments relative to kind of the age uh, that someone is, except for now Stan made a good point 
and that is that the spiritual aspect is not tethered to biology uh, in, in quite the same way. So these things are, a lot of factors come into making these kind of assessments. Mm-hmm. Well, Jordan, this is all tied into the, what is the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you, and all of this is, has to do with, with the question of what is a human being? Mm-hmm. Now, and of course, this is going to involve, uh, is there a God uh, in, and what is God like? Uh, as a part of defining what a human being is, but if you get if you get that definition wrong, hmm. then there either is no purpose in life. We're just here. That's all, and you create your own, and and that's a non-starter because then you can't distinguish Hitler from Hugh Hefner from Mother Teresa, uh, because as long as each one created his own definition of flourishing and was achieving that. If that was uh, annihilating a race of people or treating women as objects or serving the poor uh, and worshiping God, you know, what difference does it make? But America is in trouble precisely at this point, because to be honest, uh, flourishing is now defined largely in terms of A, the right to do anything I want to do without constraint, and B, pleasure. Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 address those. And if you make those your aim, uh, then it's going to be like Turkish delight. You'll need more and more pleasure and more and more autonomy to get the same buzz that you got from a lesser amount. Mm -hmm. This is what explains addictions. Uh, A false definition of what life is all about to begin with leads to addictive behaviors mm-hmm. because you need more and more of whatever is your summum bonum, your supreme good, uh, to, to, to get the same buzz. And now you become addicted and it turns sour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is why study after study indicates that people aren't happy. And that's because they have a wrong understanding of what this whole thing's about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it becomes a moving target. Absolutely. That's one thing that I think we talked about this in a previous episode that's important about being involved in a faith community is that we can see, hopefully, see exemplars of people who are walking in this faithful path and want to serve God, love their neighbor. We can see that, see that they may possess a true happiness. I sent an email this week after... I encountered someone at church. I sent an email of, I want to get to know you. I want to be around you more. You know, I see the light of Christ in you. I sense the aroma of Christ in the way that you live your life. I'd like more of that, please. Amen. <laughs> Show me how you do this. So That's many right. people haven't had the privilege of being a close witness to the life of someone who is a profound image bearer. Um, if you have, what, how would you describe that person to others? You know, when Jesus made the statement that he who gains his life loses it, and if you lose it, you find, for his sake, you find it, he just wasn't whistling Dixie on that. that. That was a description of reality. It wasn't a command. He was describing the way we work. 
And the way we work is if we learn to give ourselves away to other people and for a cause that's greater than we are, namely the cause of Christ, we become happy. And if we make it all about us, we lose it. Case in point, my daughter called us at eight o'clock this morning. And it was, I mean, she said, oh my gosh, I cannot tell you. I mean, I am so pumped right now. And what had happened is she's been working full time with the pro-life movement for a year now. And this is what God made her to do. Mm-hmm. And she had talked to a couple uh, the night before, and, and, and they'd asked her a whole bunch of questions about what th- this organization does with the money, this, that, and the other. And, and they, they sent her an email, and she woke up this morning, and they'd given $100,000 for the pro-life cause. And she was literally beside herself. And, of course, what she was li- experiencing was the unbelievable happiness and joy that comes from knowing that your life is counting for something bigger than you are. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what Jesus said. If you lose your life and give it away for his sake to to serving uh, other people with your gifts and abilities, there is a joy that is unmatchable. Now, that doesn't mean you can't take time for vacation and, and, and any of that. But you get the point here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that is just an illustration of how you find true happiness is by mm-hmm. giving yourself away. Stan, how would you characterize somebody who who is like that? Well, I think it's it, it's seen in so many different ways, but the common thread is it's a person who understands who God's created them to be, not trying to be someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is trying to be be all God has created them to be in light of their gifts, their unique background, experiences, uh, opportunities, uh, but in a way that draws attention not to themselves, but to uh, to others and ultimately to Christ. In other words, it's not a kind of a prideful, look at me, I'm great uh, at this or that, but it's more of a sense of uh, serving others and ultimately serving the Lord in light of those gifts and opportunities. And I've just had the privilege of knowing a number of people like that, which uh, for me incarnates it. And it's so much easier to think about people uh, that I've seen who are like that and, and, and try to be like them mm-hmm. uh, than more the abstract. But, but that, I think, is the principle. I think you're right. Absolutely right. And usually there'll be a kind of a wisdom about them. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there'll be that they will have a manifest. Well, I hate to bring this up again, but the fruit of the spirit, there'll be a mm-hmm. manifestation of kindness or good, whatever it might be. They might not be all equal in a person's life because mm-hmm. we all have different uh, areas where we're probably stronger on those, but, but, but they're the kind of person that's deep in your heart. You say, you know what? I'd like to be like that person mm-hmm. or, yeah. or I wish my kids would grow up to be like that individuals that are 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 enviable in that way than it is on moral issues so what i find is that no matter what your view about morality people will say mother teresa had something billy graham there was something about him that was just yeah quality it's easier to, than, than it is to get agreement about his moral mm-hmm. uh so i find that very interesting People mm-hmm. know one when they see one, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. In the email I said this week, I said, I think I want to be you when I grow up. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> I love that, Jordan, because that's, you're on the money there. And of course, 
we don't want to copy everything about somebody because they have vices. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, that's the way you grow is you have Mm -hmm. individuals that you ask, how did you become this way? And you try to pattern Mm -hmm. your life after them in a healthy Mm -hmm. kind of way. Of course, Mm -hmm. we've all done that. Mm -hmm. Would you both be willing to describe the person that has person or persons that come to mind for you? when you think of people who have lived in that way as a witness to you? Well, I would, I would draw a distinction between kind of people that were, I'm going to just say public figures, and then those I'm around day by day. But the three most important people in my life were Bill Bright, Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary, and by far the most important was Dallas Willard. Mm-hmm. These were individuals that have marked me more than anybody uh, in my life. Now, in terms of people that I have been around, uh, there would be certain friends that I've had, or maybe say older people in the church, though at my mm-hmm. age, that's getting harder to find. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, during the, during the journey, and I, you know, I particularly want to mention their names. I don't want to embarrass them, but there would be certain friends that I've known or, or a little bit older people that were just Man, they were just they were like Christ, and uh, they, they really impacted me. Mm-hmm. Stan, I'll, I'll, I'll let Stan. Yeah. Well, and I've had uh, similar uh, relationships over the years. I actually talk about the three people who've most influenced me on my website. JP, you're mm-hmm. one of them. Oh, my. Uh, Roger Hershey, who was the staff worker when I was a student in the ministry I was involved with and discipled me those years. I just interviewed him on my College Faith mm-hmm. podcast. So uh, look for that coming out. But the third, uh, I'll say a little more about, and that's Danny McCain. Mm -hmm. And Danny uh, founded the ministry I served with Global Scholars uh, back in 86. He has been teaching with us now for all those years at the University of Jos in Nigeria. But when I think about the different capacities that we were talking about earlier and what it looks like to fully live into those and express th- 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 those characteristics in really healthy and robust and interconnected ways. I think of Danny. I mean, I can just go down the list. Unfortunately, we don't see each other that much since he does live in Nigeria, but uh, the times we can visit by Zoom or the phone are just r- really rich times for me. Hmm. One, one very important implication to this is that in our approach to the purpose of life and human flourishing, there is a very important role for pain Mm. and suffering that can be redemptive. Now, now pain and Mm. suffering are not good in any sense of the word in and of themselves. And so we Christians fight against pain and suffering like anyone else. But the important thing for us is that while we can't always control Uh, the ability to get rid of these things. And there are unhealthy ways of avoiding pain. Uh, And there are healthy ways of uh, acknowledging and receiving it because we know Mm -hmm. that that is the result of doing the right thing. And it's always, it always has the possibility of being redemptive. We all know through experience and the teaching of the word that times in our lives when we've made a decision or we've suffered through no fault of our own, that all things do in fact work together for good to those that love God and so on. Mm -hmm. And that's really true because we've all experienced. And I say, can you imagine what a wonderful thing it is 
that even pain and suffering can be formative if we allow it to, while at the same time, we're not being foolish and we're trying to, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're sick, we're trying to get well or whatever it might be. Uh, that's so. That's what a, that, mm-hmm. that is such an advantage of being a Christ follower. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would want to say is that the that the idea of a Christian celebrity is repulsive to me. Mm-hmm. The, 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 it's like being the the, the best uh, Christian prostitute you could possibly <laughs> be. You know, I mean, the idea is an oxymoron. I just we don't have celebrities mm. now. Now we do have heroes. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different thing than a celebrity. So what we want are Christian heroes, and we imitate them. But if anybody thinks that, uh, that we, we, we have celebrities, we should have nothing to do with that kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. Amen. When your power outpaces your character. Oh, yeah. There are some huge issues. It's not a good thing. No. The passage that, uh, that suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, character, hope. Many times have I wanted to skip through those middle bits. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, uh, suffering produces hope. There we go. But the endurance, the character that I mean, it's all part of the package that is life as a believer. Yes. And when we accidentally create celebrities that haven't walked that process enough times or haven't been faithful in those moments, they certainly aren't going to stand up to the scrutiny of that's right. That's celebrity. And we shouldn't be surprised when we notice and watch them fall. Amen. That's right. So along that vein, both of you have had a long walk with Christ at this point. What is one obstacle you have encountered in becoming formed to the image of God? Uh, I am always seemingly under a tsunami of ideas that are just false (laughs) from our culture, from people I know, from conversations I have. There's always a challenge to being faithful to Romans 12, to be transformed by the renewing of my mind and believing what's true. And, uh, and to be honest with you, it's been hard to find community, uh, a community of others who also even see that as a problem and want to talk about important things and try to learn to love God more with our minds and understand what's true and right and good and beautiful. It's just so hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I just, I can't do it alone. Well, I, those are so good, and I would uh, I, I would echo that. I'd say for me, probably as well. Um, one would be distractions. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Paul said this mm-hmm. one thing I do, and I say these hundred things I dabble in. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's so it's so hard in this modern world uh, where there's a multiple options. Everything's available. It's just so hard to stay focused. So that's that's a that's a difficulty I think that has hindered me because I probably spent too much time on things that don't matter and it's it's always good to have hobbies and all that I'm not denying that but that's one thing I think the other might be uh, that I was born in in a home that was everything was half empty and 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 the world was a fearful place and so you had to always be what ifing in the future and and making sure you weren't going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. 
And so I have, I have spent uh, the last seven years of my life working on becoming half full. And I have, I've, I've done that. I've now at a very different place, but I, but it's been, it's been something I've had to struggle at. Whereas say my wife, Hope, was born with a, you know, a, a very much of a half full optimistic perspective. And so she's, she's very upbeat and positive and optimistic and doesn't catastrophize about the future. She's hadn't had to work at that. Uh, she works, has to work on other things, but I'm one that, that that wasn't the way I was, I don't know, genetically wired or brought up. And so I've had to really struggle against uh, that that approach to life, and uh, I think that uh, the 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 labor that I've done, I write about this in my book, Finding Quiets, in ways that I actually have helped me. Uh, but that was a that was an obstacle I really have had to overcome, and I continue to work on maintaining mm-hmm. uh, where I've reached now, so that I don't backslide into the way I used to be. Mm-hmm. I think there in both of your stories is an acknowledgement that there is a real enemy and there are real obstacles to living this kind of life. It's not that if you just set your mind to it, there, there are things that, that are trying to get your attention away from this goal and away from the love of God and his people. It's a real challenge. So I want to end with what has been your greatest joy in becoming more formed in the image of God. Oh man, that would be very hard for me to answer. I think a deeper sense of being comfortable in my own skin, mm. of feeling like I have been faithful in the role God put before me and that that my life has been worth it. Mm. Stan? Jordan, I don't want you to think I'm taking an easy out, but that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. <laughs> it really was. Um, you know, just this idea of having a sense that God's created me with certain strengths and weaknesses, and that's okay. And uh, I have found joy in, uh, in, in both trying to press into those areas of strength, but also realize I don't have to be great at everything because there are others who are great at those mm-hmm. things and how can I help them do those things well mm-hmm. and ex- exercise their gifts and their God-given talents, mm-hmm. you know, and the role I'm in now in leadership gives me an opportunity to, to do that every day. And I love that. And it's one of my greatest joys to be part of a community that uh, brings different gifts and abilities to the, uh, the table. And we work together toward an important goal and it's, it's a great joy. Mm-hmm. I've heard it said before that as we become more like Christ, we become more fully ourselves. Yeah. So both of you articulating that, that is, that's a great goal. And to be able to, you know, come to our time before Christ and say, I did my best. Yep. Mm -hmm. That leaves such a mark on, on our world and on those that we lived alongside. It's a really great gift. Thank you both for participating in that journey. We need more of you. Oh, we're doing our best. (laughs) I am very grateful for this conversation. We will talk to you both soon. Thank you. Good time together. This has been great. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith, seeking understanding. 
Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcast, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.